I go first. So, how do we start? Hi, this is Aga and Łukasz, and this is Catching the Next Wave podcast, where we discuss the future of design. And much more. The magic of the season is that it surprises even us. Oh, yes. And this time it surprised us with two guests. We have with us today Ariel William Ora and Rasmus Streit. Ariel is a Berlin-based Indonesian artist who explores themes related to identity, memory and scarcity. He fancies the durability of homo sapiens and the fragility of the machines. Quite the opposite to what most people think, right? <laughs> yeah. He's working with a variety of media ranging from audio and sound sculptures. I saw some of them super cool. Physical and interactive installations and moving or still images. He co-founded an empath-driven artist collective LKW and also progressive rock band Vincent Vega and an Indonesian gastronomy initiative Soy Division Berlin. Is the Vincent Vega the character Pulp from Fiction? Uh, yeah. Pulp Fiction? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was in Indonesia. No. <laughs> he spent time in the Netherlands, though, because yeah, of the mayonnaise yeah. story. Exactly. <laughs> I love that movie. So also we have Rasmus with us, Rasmus Streit is a Danish video artist and VJ who started his career experimenting with 3D geometric shapes and tool fabric in the large film studios at Aarhus Harbor. Later, he took his visual concepts to European clubs in Berlin, Aarhus, and made it as far as Cape Town and Iceland. And we have a common link because we are both connected to Chaos Pilot. Erasmus's visuals are dominated by obscure scenes from the long-forgotten 60s science fiction gems and minimalistic shapes of clever geometric universes. And Rasmus runs a Stride Studio, uh, which is a multidisciplinary visual art studio. And he also runs Daydream, which is an agency that creates alternative realities using artistic installations in the urban space. Guys, so fantastic to have well, you with us today. Thank you for having us, yeah. You both work with experiences and you both say that experiences beat consumption in modern world why is it the case i want to just backtrack to what you said about the connection to the chaos pilots because how the chaos pilots work very much relates to the human experience as a whole and i think that you can also talk more about this as well but but just in the way that we are a semi post colonialistic world, I think these human connections getting more and more important and we're rediscovering the communities. I find myself like really practical in doing stuff. I really love to make something with my hands. But then in, in this capitalistic world, it's important to get back again to the essence of state of being of you as a kind, as a mankind, and also as a social kind, basically, that you need to interact with other peoples as well. In my artistic focus, I interest in scarcity concept. Is this like some sort of a man-made concept that uh, some people have the same needs, but then can be fulfilled by the other people who live in another country? And this is what makes trades and what makes currency. That's the world that I know since I was born. So this is in the terms of a sense-making, 
at least the way I approach life is actually um, to put the center again in the connections of being human holistically. So, so you both say that you are the hand people. From my opinion, I failed more than the people who actually visionize or like think about stuff because like i tend to make something like really quick prototyping solutions and uh, without even like thinking further what is the context you know like a visionaire and then i think i felt a lot more than them but it's also nice because i like to fail because uh, it gives me reflection time to also like make a context at the end what i'm doing i see also failure as a magic on itself if I can say. I really want to separate the design approach and artistic approach because I works a lot with hands and prototyping and I failed. Sometimes the failure leads me to solve some other problems. So it's like move to other direction that it probably become my, my next focus of interest, become like some sort of my new skill set hmm. because I failed in that one and I realized I don't have to force to solve that problem because it, on the way I found interesting phenomenon on solving other problems, for example. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting what you're saying, uh, Ariel, about, uh, well, f failing and in terms of using the hands. This notion of embodied learning, I think that's a sort of a notion that's very close to my artistic expression because it originates from something that I created with the hands. Like for my sake, I use software, but it's all very tangible. And the, the embodied learning and the magic, what is a magical way of being in the world and I find that a, a lot of the joy and magic in my world comes from creating something. Ariel, your artist collective is the empathy-driven artist collective. Could you tell a little bit more about the story behind yeah, it? Yeah, the thing is like I quite obsessed with empathy, even like the words, but like to actually doing it. This collective started um, with the people that I studied together in the School of Design Thinking in Potsdam. The collective stands for Luftmenschen Klangwerk, like a German translation. But we did have a problem with the word Luftmenschen itself because it used by uh, a Nazi party in order to mock Jews community at that time. And Luftmenschen mean like people on the air, like people who only have vision but not actually doing anything. And then mm -hmm. the Nazi says mm -hmm. the Jews people is like Luftmenschen because they don't belong in earth. So we have to change that name a little bit so it stays like LKW, but that's the story of it. So what we did, this is like the transition. We met in design school, but then we wanted to make like an art collective. This is like our struggle, basically, because in our opinion, the approach is quite different. When we started to make sense of our collective in the sense that we want to make art together, we don't have any job to solve a problem as a designer. What we want to do is actually like to express our aspiration or our thoughts or our interest or whatever it is into our artistic expression. And what we interested to focus or like to develop is from empathy, basically. That's what the story began. And then case by case, it could be a performance albums or like even theater music. We would like to dig first what is the general context and like put empathy first on whatever context it is. So we try to walk in the shoes of either human or other situation that comes within this context of the output of the art. And then we started from there. That's why it's called like empathy driven. So in a way, it is a combination of design approach and arts because art often starts from the intrinsic 
vision of an artist. And what you're saying is to bringing this element of empathizing with the world yeah, as an inspiration sort for, of a, for sort of a, a hybrid approach that we take something like from design elements, but then it doesn't necessarily solve the solution of this person or like if the situation of the person, for example, mm-hmm. the approach is like more to to be empathized to understand what is actually the situation and express it to artistic mm-hmm. output. And Rasmus, you also, in a way, in your work, work with empathy a lot. It's interesting, right? So take, for instance, the Daydream project, which is basically taking empty spaces in the city and transforming them into magical art installations that people can go in and have fun. And they can take really nice photos and they can be explorers in an uh, empty space that was serving no purpose for their community. But now it all of a sudden has another value to it and it can actually add an element of fun to living in that community. I guess in terms of thinking of empathy, I love the notion of entertaining people as well. I I, I don't think necessarily entertainment is such a bad thing. I mean, from my personality type is kind of, I like to please people. So <laughs> so maybe it's very natural that I want to entertain people <laughs> as well. And I guess that's very reflected in the stuff that I do and that I want to give to the world. Entertainment has a notion of empathetic design in it, right? Because if you don't know what brings fun to people, it's difficult to inspire them. How do you approach your work? It's an interesting question about what is design and what is art and where can they overlap and where they're very different. In my opinion, art is more about asking questions and having a dialogue, whereas design is trying to solve a problem. I think the two overlap at some point. In terms of empathizing, <laughs> I have a general love for people. <laughs> I think that's a good place to start, right? community feeling so i had my birthday yesterday oh and I happy had birthday over. yeah thank <laughs> you thank you so much but just the joy that comes from having your friends over feeding them food and posting a space for them to feel joy yeah one person said i'm so happy that you were born mm. and it's like oh wow that i think is through art or through the installations that we do can can make someone reflect about oh wow hey, I'm happy I'm here in this moment, or hey, I'm happy I can actually share this installation with with my family or my friends. Yeah, then I would feel truly that I touch people through the things I do. Gaga, mm-hmm. you are it's, trying to elicit something from his head, but it seems Rasmus has this empathy so deeply built in that it's just there. <laughs> First of all, it's really interesting that you mentioned entertainment. just like to engage people, to move people. I found it really hard because it means that I have to sell something. Mm. Engaging for me, because I study business for bachelor, that's why like my head is like, okay, engaging people, it means like engaging customers mm-hmm. to buy your products. And it's like really hard because I don't want to do that. But then in the context of what I'm doing now, like let's say artistic output, I want to have that ability as well to engage people. Mm-hmm. Entertainment, it's something that I never really considered, but it is also one tool to engage people. I mean, some people needs to be entertained at some point. Entertainment doesn't have to be like something always happy or bling bling. You can also entertain by listening, I don't know, 
metal music, for example, <laughs> that's also part of entertainment. But still in the struggle of, I don't want to formulate it as I'm selling it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's really hard. I really love your definition of engagement. I talk a lot about engagement. And when people ask me what engagement is, I always struggle a little because like yourself, I don't want to see it as a sales tool. Mm. I want to see it as a true involvement mm-hmm. and the willingness to return for more. Yeah. So, you know, it's not pushing people, but it's more people wanting more of what you offer, Mm -hmm. which is very relevant to doing art in a way, because that's what artists do. They create something in a way that they hope that others will want to come and see more of it and participate in more of what they Mm -hmm. do, right? Yeah. I have a question about this, actually, to all of you. This engagement you describe as an outcome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is this something that you design for? Or does it stem from your attitude and the reason why you started whatever you started in the first place? Is it something that can be manufactured or has to come from the intent? Wow, that's tricky. I think it's both. I think it's skills that you can learn. People can move other people. It is also something that you actually design. I mean, like you want to engage people with specific sounds or like specific materials. I think at the end, it's something that you design if you put it. So I think it can be both. The best way to engage people is through emotions. And how can you be very thoughtful or mindful about which emotions you want people to feel? I guess through design, it gets a bit easier to have a framework around it. And with art, I do art from a super egoistic place in me. And there's a part of me that doesn't really care what other people think. But then as well, I also Mm. measure the success maybe of an opening or of an installation with how many people will come and see it, how many Facebook uh, shares does it get or Instagram likes or stories or whatever. It's interesting to look at the metrics of how do we measure engagement because we can easily get caught in this loop of just measuring engagement through online presence or online shareability and clicks and likes and so on. I mean, for the daydream spaces, we really want to create spaces that are very shareable and very likable and actually has high value in both the, the real world, but also the digital world, if you can talk about a division between the real world and the digital world. Maybe it's also because I'm a bit younger, my whole generation, there's almost no difference between digital and analog you know, anymore in mm-hmm. the world. You, Rasmus, mentioned that you just had your birthday and you had a dinner with yeah. your friends. Yeah. And Ariel, you run a Soy Division, yeah. which is an Indonesian gastronomy initiative. And the whole idea is to create a dinner experience rather than just serve mm-hmm. food. Could you tell a little bit more about the philosophy behind this initiative? Well... At the beginning, it doesn't come with a full philosophy because it was actually a birthday gift from my partner, Lisa. On the Christmas day, she gave me a domain, soydivision.berlin, because she knows Uh I like to cook for other people. I'm usually the one who cook in our collective or if we make like a dinner series that we invite our friends. This happens almost every month. (laughs) And she said like, okay, you need to do something about this. This is something that the world is going to happy that these things exist, she said. So she gave me this domain and he said, like, do something about it. 
and I never actually using it until last year. I got invited to do a music performance, like a sound performance in one venue, which happens to be a natural wine shop. But they also have a sound system and they make some gigs sometimes. I know the owner and like he said, hey, I think you should try to cook before you play and see if people likes it. So like make like a pop-up dinner thingy before I play a gig. And I did that and people are seems to be really enjoying it. So we ended up making it more and more. And then on the way, I also like building up these things. Like I make an Instagram account and filling up the website with the contents of my cooking diary or something like that. Until some point, I we went to Indonesia last December. And I just have like some sort of revelation. Okay, maybe I need to pay attention to this because I get good feedback. And then I took some cooking classes. <laughs> ah. <laughs> But in the process, I tried to make sense because, okay, this is probably could be like a, some sort of artistic output as well. I didn't think about experience, but at the end, it is a whole experience. So when I come back to Germany, I said, like, let's make it happen. Let's try to make it every month. It was December, so we do it like quite intensely. And then on the way, we try to make a collaboration with other artists who are performing with me and to actually cook with me. And then from there, we, we sort of like each episode, we found a theme that we want to respond and it becomes like quite thematic at the end. So I was like, yeah, okay, this is a performance then. I mean, like including the dinner is also performance. And it happens, there's like Indonesian community somehow that naturally build up as well, because I cook Indonesian food, I'm from Indonesia. And all of them are great artists that I barely know them before. And then they just like popping up through collaborations. And then suddenly, hey, why don't we make a real thing that continues between us? So we become a collective now. And this is actually my main project at the moment because we do it quite often in different format. And then we said, yeah, okay, what is our focus now? We're the same Indonesian people who are living abroad for quite some time. And then we want to use these tools as what? And then we come with the formulation that this is actually our interface to play with identities Mm. because we are Indonesian but our identity is already smashed and fluid with the foreign culture. Like I've been living in Germany for nine years now. And the other friend, the other Indonesian friend in this collective born here, but he's still Indonesian, I guess, <laughs> sort of. <laughs> Playing with identity to become like observer, like our Indonesian identity back home and like our present beings. There's a lot of nice phenomena that he wants to tell people basically how we feel about what we're doing about how we actually adjusting our behavior or whatever it is and it becomes like performance which actually Mm -hmm. comes with food so like food is part of a performance it's only one thing basically so now the idea is every performance we treat it like a theater house make a piece basically we have a title we have a a fixed collaborators that comes with this performance and we also present it in different venues we sort of mm-hmm. did a tour about it as well. We play in seven different cities nowadays already because we start to get invitation from gallery and also like from other people who are interested only to do a pop-up, but mostly from, from the art scene because maybe like this kind of a thing is quite interesting. Especially the food, it's really interesting for them because maybe not so many people are interested in, in doing that in the art form. So yeah, we are now still in the developing phase on, on what we actually want to be focused on because we make a lot of performance, but then 
we, we're getting heavy also with the cooking stuff, but then we don't really want to run a restaurant. But then it's also nice to sell food. So we, the collective now facing also the, it's not a dilemma, it's like a, just a phase of, in one point, okay, we're an artist, we make a performance, but then we sell food, which is products. Well, who are we? Mm-hmm. And this is also interesting because now we're dealing with the German bureaucracy on stating who we are. Because if you said it as an artist, of course, you only pay 7% taxes. But if you're selling food, which is more complicated and it's products and it needs to be having like a standard of production as well. So we are like in the process of dealing and make peace with bureaucracy. One of our guests in the previous season mentioned he's a musician mm. and he mentioned that... Uh, It's very likely that today artists need to become entrepreneurs. Ah, And what you're saying is exactly that, right? Uh, Yeah, there's even entrepreneurs or what, like this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Rasmus, how do you see that? No, I I actually like that a lot. I mean, because my background from the chaos palace is very entrepreneurial. Going out and making a project wherever in the world you are and and getting the tool set to create change. Yeah, I think that's very needed. Yeah. Um, so do you see yourself as the entrepreneur? <laughs> When you say it, I think so. I really relate to what um, what Ariel is saying about like taxes <laughs> and all of that. Because <laughs> let's just realize it. Like we have to make our art or our vision for what we want to put into this world as creators. We need mm. to make it happen in the real world to give it to people. Yeah. And sometimes we just have to play along with these difficult rules. Yeah. And I think we are rare species, even like uh, in our insurance system here in Germany, like uh, there's like a special price for artists. I think the world nowadays, they, they still have like this old school conservative definition of stuff. Like mm-hmm. we are a society, uh, this kind of art printer things that just probably like just a new generation that's coming out with a new idea of work or like doing life. And it's also a little bit tricky on positioning yourself in society in a sense of this, basically. At least that's my struggle. I can imagine that. Rasmus, you did the creative leadership uh, program mm. at Chaos Pilot, right? Mm. Does that help you be prepared for this challenge of artpreneurship? I think so. My partner, she always tells me, oh, Rasmus, sometimes I worry for you because you just bullshit about things and then, then you make it happen anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, she comes from a very different background. She studied at the universities, studied theater. And one of the important lessons is you have to, I don't want to use the term fake it till you make it, but when the path to success is not clear, like I spent some time in, in South Africa and in terms of South Africa can be quite a, a violent place and you have to take a lot of precautions. But what the locals would say, they would say, stay on the beaten path. And that would basically mm-hmm. mean, you know, if you go into the savannah and you start walking around, you might end up meeting a cheetah or whatever. But it's also like that in, in life, right? If you want to be safe, then do what other people have done before and you know it's safe. And as these entrepreneurs or, or whatever we want to call ourselves, the paths are they're a bit to the side. They're a bit tricky and like... My partner says, if you have to bullshit your way and to make it happen, or, <laughs> you know, you have to use the creative force, which is also within you, right? To keep believing in something that maybe isn't so easy to explain or isn't so easy to mm-hmm. get across because it hasn't been created yet. Mm. Like soy division, mm-hmm. like empathy dinner, like Ariel is doing. Well, I like Indonesian food, but do also like a 
spectacular art exhibition by a light designer who talks about dehumanizing through colonization that her parents experienced or something like that. You know, that's mm-hmm. just an example. You both touched upon the subject already, embracing diversity rather than cultural integration. Especially the Western culture has this tendency of making everybody mm-hmm. uniform. As artists and designers, I think that we all see that diversity has such a power. How do you experience this? How do you see this? How do you deal with this? I can really say out loud about this. I hate the word integration. <laughs> Just like you said, it makes uniform, like everyone the same, because you need to, to integrate. You need to speak the same language. You need to have the same behavior. And it's such a big topic, especially here nowadays. There's also that I experienced when the first time I came to Germany. I came here for the reason of work and also studying. But then after a few years after I came here, there's a lot of people who came here because they forced to leave their land. And then we deal with the same bureaucracy system. What they told us at first is actually just try to integrate yourself first. And it's such a pain of how the society <sighs> behaving. There's a lot of misplaced stuff. It always put people not in the same equal position. And if you talk about diversity, let's not only embracing it, but let's try to do something about it. Because it is definitely the way that you enrich your society. So I prefer like the terms like maybe progressive diversity. We make some progress. Just like an X-Men, we have like a different superpowers or something. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's create even greater power, you know? Like we, we have like a different kind of things. I live in Berlin. It's quite a small island in Germany. So if I go out a little bit from Berlin, this is really a big problem. Uh, society here is still conservative and also like really monogamous in a sense. Mm-hmm. But then I went also to Denmark and we talked a little bit about the situation over there. And I just also realized that Denmark is quite close society, right, Rasmu? Right, it's very close, yeah. Despite mm. the fact that I really love Danish design and the quality of life, I even have the book that I give to Lisa, Why the Children in Denmark More Happier Than the Other Children. <laughs> 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 um, but I'm also quite surprised on like how close to be. So Rasmus, how do you see it from the perspective of Denmark? I always thought that Denmark, that's an easy country to move to. Everyone's friendly, the world's happiest country or whatever. So I always thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. Denmark, that's an easy place to grow up in and it's easy to meet people and so on. And it was not before that I moved to Sweden and then I also moved to Norway that I got some perspective on how difficult it must be to get into a Scandinavian society as a foreigner, because we are quite extreme. Well, I mean, part about the happiness is that we are also quite extreme in our happiness, I think. For instance, it's a very common way to connect with people through drinking alcohol. And and there's a lot of pressure to socialize in this way. And if you don't really do that, then that might really make your possibility to fit in very limited. So I really hope that it will get easy with time, but we'll also have to let go a little bit of ourselves. Just in terms of diversity, I had a conversation with a South African artist. She's mm-hmm. black. In South Africa, mm-hmm. you talk about whites and blacks and colored people. Mm-hmm. So she was a black artist and she was working with how to decolonize love. And I had a very frightening but also very open conversation with her about her hate towards white people it was her and me sitting at this cafe and and all of a sudden you're feeling all the hate that came from her 
was so powerful. And what she really hated was that through apartheid, her parents, they had never gotten the opportunity to love themselves because they were these second rank citizens in their own country. You know, you're not worthy anything. You're less worthy when you have a different skin color than white. And she was just seeing how that had translated into her not loving herself either. And that was just so powerful Mm -hmm. to actually see how this hate that also sparks when we have diverse meetings, we have cultures meeting and instead of integration, (laughs) then let's not integrate, but let's have a goal of have more of these unpleasant conversations because they are really what shapes openness. Yeah, exactly. And empathy, right? Big time. Um, So after that um, conversation, I uh, started to look a little bit more into what was left of the apartheid in society in general in South Africa. And I went to a, um, a junction. So like everyone drives around in Cape Town. And when you have to go out of the city, you can go like for the highway and then you come to a junction. And I think there are like six or eight different lanes. So it's a very big junction. But at that junction, you will either drive one way and you'll go to all the white area where all the privileged oh, yeah. white people live. Mm. Or you will go to the Cape Flats. It's basically where the majority of South Africa's or Cape Town's inhabitants live. Like that junction is the physical manifestation of the still inherent division, right? Division. And actually something crazy happened. I, I was driving this car. It was an old polo. And all of a sudden I was coming to this junction and there was a queue. And then my lights were starting to blink because I didn't have enough power on. Like the battery was dying. Then some minutes after, the oil was the problem. Then the car was overheating. Then I I was running out of gasoline. And I was sitting there at that junction, and I found myself in the situation. This car will stop working. Do I want to drive out Mm -hmm. through the Cape Flats to where I'm going? Or do I want to go through the nice neighborhoods of the Whites? That was such a powerful experience for me and that was also why I used that junction as a part of a film Mm. piece and these very uncomfortable places we need to go there to figure out how do we handle diversity Uh, as a society we are well maybe nowadays it's getting there but we are lacking a meeting point of creating ourselves and the others to have this chance to be empathized one another Mm-hmm. That's uh, also like the point of being an artist. I do have needs to create this meeting point or like this melting pot, let's say. That's why my dinners, my events is also like having this kind of a mission and the stuff about being Indonesian and put that identity in the front. It's not saying that we only talk about Indonesian, but also the fact that we also want to contextualize whatever that we experience here and like opening up to public and say like let's discuss about stuff so we are talking about the differences in the origin of mm. where we are coming from so our cultures and our families but there's also the the difference in how we are being trained and there is this magic of cross-pollination, not only across the diverse cultures, but also diverse topics. We are still struggling how to do it. How do you guys do it? Isn't this about like, how do you lead these very diverse group of people? 
again empathy this yeah. is like coming from the empathy from the other disciplines mm. then you took like the leadership role in order to orientate something hey if you want to work together we need mm-hmm. to co-create our own compass then when we work in those diverse groups at least this is my observation is that there is a lot of time that has to be dedicated into expressing perspectives and aligning. Mm -hmm. And my impression is always that it takes like (laughs) forever to actually get to something Mm -hmm. that we agree on. But the magic that happens there is that once we agree on this, things happen in an instant. There's like a complete inefficiency of communication, but it's an extreme efficiency and effectiveness in creating something afterwards. Totally. But then I live in a country that they're sort of making their magics through some Excel sheets and quality control. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's the magic of uh, Mercedes-Benz, of Daimler, of BMW, because I work with them in the context of human-centered design. What you're talking, Aga, is the stuff that they hired me to do something about that, you know? And it's really hard sometimes Mm -hmm. to facing this kind of environment that's already established years but i agree with you sometimes Mm -hmm. it took a lot of time to express emotions to talk about stuff but the result that's gonna come afterwards is gonna be like more powerful more solid and it's more magical at least in my opinion but then also i agree Mm -hmm. if we deep dive into only expressing emotions without any framework or like methodology or something it can end up nothing i also experienced this kind of stuff Everybody's super happy being yes, together, exactly. but nothing comes out of it. <laughs> I've seen it too. <laughs> yeah, it is a very interesting challenge. And I think that this will become more and more challenge for us because like you both noticed that we live in a much more complex world today. And this complex world demands from us to collaborate. And yet the culture so far trained us in being more cogs in the machine. So you kind of come, you do your job, you throw it over the fence to another person Mm. and you're sort of done. So there's a huge challenge there to change the ways of working together. And in a way, I think, funny enough, because you think that artists are maybe individualistic and sometimes, like you, Mm. Rasmus said, Mm. selfish Mm. or egoistic. But on the other hand, I think that artists do have tricks on how to create successful collaborations. So what are your tricks to make it happen? I like to think of myself as having tricks. That's nice. <laughs> Let me just... I have Magic the secret stash of tricks. I'm going to show you. Well, at the Chaos Palace, we have a thing called projecting. You have some conversations where you share different viewpoints and different angles on a subject. And by sharing perspectives, you empathize with each other. That might just be something that for me at this point has just gotten so part of my um, core beliefs on how to engage in working together. But then I also believe very strongly, because there is so much complexity, we as leaders, when we show up in a group and in collaboration, if we carry a part of the vision, we have a a responsibility to also give very clear leadership or clear guidance. Mm. I'm just thinking of when we collaborated Ariel on that Kerspalet uh, event in mm-hmm. Berlin. What managed us to work really well together was that we had very specific roles within the what we were delivering, mm-hmm. uh, but also that at least, well, I felt that I was able to say, hey, 
we're going to do this this way. And you were open to letting me take a more direct leadership style and make some decisions to move forward. And that we allow each other to do that is, I think, is very important. Speaking about leadership, totally agree. The thing is like what I learned in the School of Design Thinking, we sort of like a believer in this kind of a shared leadership. But then the way we're doing it, like we want so everyone is equal and like realize what's the intakes of our challenge of doing something and take it as a teamwork. Sometimes it's really nice. Sometimes it still needs to have like what Rasmus said when we involved in this project, like he's already come with clear vision of doing stuff. It doesn't mean that he's the ultimate leader, but then the one who actually taking this compass and like, okay, what about we going to this direction? And then we share it together. Sometimes in my old study environment, it's just like too loose. Like, okay, we're sharing leadership, but how? Not really clear. It's setting up agreement, for example. It's not the rules, but like some agreement on how we're going to approach this kind of leadership because it's, it's something that's really important. And I totally agree, like the old school definition of leadership is not really relevant anymore, but also like this kind of a leadership positioning and also role really depends case by case and also in different kind of environment on how people or we can approach that. Actually, from my experience, how I see this is like the leader creates a container that sort of sails in a certain direction, but the artists who come into that project, they fill in the container with how they understand this direction. So it's not about telling anyone what mm. exactly they are supposed to do, but giving the boundaries of mm. what we are going to deliver. This is, for me, the new way of leading, especially in our world, in the world of designers and artists, where you have everybody who is creative and they all want to express their own perspective and their own talent and their own mm. idea. So you cannot yeah. force them to do something the way you mm. want them to do it. But having a good leader for me in these contexts is to have this direction and the mm. checkpoints and the tools for synchronizing the whole thing rather than anything else. Totally. And I don't know about you, Rasmus. My experience of working with the people who are coming from art school is really hard. Sometimes <laughs> you have this kind of ego-centric mm. stuff. We talk again about like how we create artists mostly based on your ego as an artist, right? Mm. Because you want to express mm -hmm. your opinion to your expression. And like mm. they don't really train to be working groups, I guess. No. Most of them, at least in mm -hmm. my experience, I cannot really um, stereotype everyone. But it's just, just what I felt. But then it's quite contradictory of what I read. For example, I, I like Bauhaus School in Weimar. And apparently at that time, we're talking about 1920s, right? The way they teach art is really communal, is really collective in a sense. That's what I read about Bauhaus at least. And I don't really feel it now. Like, I felt like sometimes like the real art world is really a closed environment. <laughs> where they are, they're like sort of keeping for themselves, mm -hmm. you know? It's also like quite a struggle. Mm -hmm. As we are coming to an end, I would like to ask you both, what was the most magical experience that you've had in your life? When I watched my partner giving birth. So very natural. Yes, it is. Magic. Erasmus, how about you? Wow, it's such a huge question. <laughs> okay. It's hard to say what's the most magical. 
A recent very magical moment was when some months ago, because I before I moved to Berlin, I used to live in Norway. And as I also said, how Scandinavia can be quite difficult to fit into. But I decided to do something that you don't do in Norway. I decided to hitchhike from Oslo mm-hmm. and down to the south. So it was about 500 kilometers. What a really magical moment was that I got picked up by Rashid, And Rashid didn't speak English and he didn't speak much Norwegian either, but we just hit it off. And Rashid, he was on his way to a wedding town. Like he he took me like a hundred kilometers in his very, very little car that was kind of, it was not a very safe car. Let's put it like that. But he was on his way to this wedding and he was very, very concerned about me that the mm. Norwegian people, they were not going to pick me up if he put me off on the street. Mm. So actually he offered me to give me money for a train so I didn't have to, oh. to meet all of these Norwegian people who wouldn't oh pick me up. My God. Um, but what he also <laughs> did and what was even bigger experience was that he took me to this Somalian wedding. So oh. <laughs> he drove me all the way and like the situation was very interesting because he didn't speak much, but I just understood that he was calling his friend and saying that he brought another guest to this wedding. <laughs> and it ended up with, uh, with me sitting on the floor talking about African soccer, which I know nothing about, but then having a traditional meal and celebrating a part of a Somalian wedding. I stayed there for a couple of hours and then he drove me out to the highway and that was it. Like deciding to do something that you should not do, like the thing that you don't mm, do, mm-hmm. do that thing. And then be open, even though it might be a bit uncomfortable, stay in that comfortable state. I think that has probably been the aggregator or like the catalyzing force of my biggest experiences in life. If you guys were to recommend a book or a piece of music or a film that you find magical, what would it be? The book I would recommend is actually a book I got for my birthday. And it's called The Book of Symbols. What this book contains is all the symbols that we find in nature, that we find in our human world and in our spiritual world. And I um, feel so connected to symbols and I love emojis and I love how that has even brought like symbols even closer to us in our everyday. Mm -hmm. We use them so much, but there are just so many symbols in the world and looking to understand ourselves and understand our lives through symbols all the way back thousands mm. of years. It's just been such a beautiful uh, way to look at art and look at look mm. at life. Yeah, so I would recommend that. Mm. Wow. <laughs> I would recommend album from Brian Eno. It's called Music for the Airports. He made it like in the 70s as a sound installation, but it's released also as a normal album. So if you can enjoy it, like I think in most of the streaming services that uh, existed nowadays, they call it ambience music, but I call it like quite magical music. It's sort of generative. He made it like with electronics sound sources and he sort of like programmed it to be really flowy without um, even setting up or compose it like really structure way in a sense that you make music so it's like really experimental but at the end it's really Mm -hmm. at least it feels like really magical for me every time i heard it guys thank you so much for joining us today (laughs) magical conversation oh it's fun thank you for listening to this episode of the catching the next wave podcast 
We would love to hear from you on Twitter at Malka6 and at DLS6. You can find more details on www.catchingthenextwavepodcast.com. So that was a long answer, but um, yeah.